Bible, the understandable focus is almost always on the nice parts. The problem is that there are parts of the Bible that aren't so nice. And those parts are starting to get a lot more attention. Seemingly strange commands condemning tattoos? Verses that seem to endorse slavery? How about the verses telling women they should submit, remain silent, and can't say anything in church? What do we do with all the verses that make it feel like you're being forced to choose between the Bible and science? How do we make sense of all this? Because it's all there in the Bible. Good morning. It's great to see you. If we've never met, my name is Jay, and I am a part of the team here. And welcome to Westgate, whether it's your first time here. If that's you, man, special, special welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to meet you and say hello. Or maybe you've been at Westgate for a long, long time, and we're thrilled you're here, and everybody in between, everybody watching online, thanks for coming. We are concluding today a series that we've been in for the last six weeks or so, and it has been fascinating and mind-blowing and challenging and hopefully um, enlightening and inspiring and most importantly, transformative. And uh, we've, man, we, this has not been an easy series, has it? If you've been around. I and mean, we've talked about like slavery in the Bible and misogyny in the Bible and is the Bible anti-science and there's all this violence in the Bible. It has not been easy, but great things are never easy, are they? And so as we've done the hard work, I've been so encouraged and inspired by all of you uh, watching you, getting emails and conversations throughout the week uh, about how God is opening your eyes to the beauty and the goodness and the love he has for us while, while wading into, and because of wading into some of the difficult texts. And today, as we conclude the series, uh, I want to ask a very big overarching question. It is a challenging question, and it's a very pertinent question when it comes to culture today. So to help us get there, though, I want to begin with a little exercise, okay? I know usually we show up and uh, we, we maybe sometimes feel like passive observers of a 35-minute sermon. Not today. You are all active participants. Are you ready? Okay, three of you are ready. The rest of you... May the Lord have mercy on your soul. Okay, I don't care if you're ready or not. We're doing this all together. I want to show you an image. This is an image, one of a variety of images. It is called the Rorschach Inkblot Test. Some of you know this. It is a, uh, it's a really popular sort of tool in the world of psychology. Now, there's so many of us in the room, so please raise your hand and keep your answers appropriate. Okay, uh, I would like for you to tell me what you see when you see this image right here in the front. Darth Vader. Darth Vader. That's a good one. I see that too. A bunch of you see Darth Vader. Anybody else? Just raise your hand. Way back there. Darth Vader. Okay, no more Darth Vaders. Very good. No more Darth Vaders. Anybody else? Anyone see anything other than Darth Vader right here? A little girl what? A little girl smiling. A little girl smiling and Darth Vader. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, right here. A what, soldier? Oh, yeah, with a helmet, like an old school ancient helmet, helmeted soldier. Yeah, very good, kind of like Darth Vader. Way, way in the back there and just yell your answer really loud. 
Yeah, right there. Sorry? Planet of the Apes. Very good. Maybe we'll do one more right here. The exit of a tunnel. Yeah, very good. Okay, we'll do one last one right here. Jesus with a... Kudos for the Christian answer. Well done. Jesus with a goatee. See Jesus everywhere, you guys. That's... No, that's very good. I see that too. Okay, second question. Who's right? Who had the right answer? Everybody. Nobody. Right? Because what is the Rorschach inkblot test? It's a psychology test, and there is no right answer. What you see is the right answer. Uh, if you know anything about the Rorschach inkblot test, what you know is that um, although it was developed in the early, early 20th century, it actually rose to prominence in the 1960s. It was the 1960s that um, brought the Rorschach inkblot test to like its highest of heights, where it became for many decades the go-to test uh, for psychology. Now, the reason that's important is because right at the same time, about the 1960s, there was a seismic shift in the Western world and in America in particular. And the shift has to do with a move toward individualism. Now, this is important for us to think about because a test like the Rorschach inkblot test is the epitome of individualism. I'm not saying it's a bad test. It's probably quite helpful. But what it is for certain is an individualized test. There is no right answer. And maybe more importantly, there is no wrong answer. What you see is the right answer. Individualism has um, taken on a whole new light today in the social media age. The reason all of this is important for us is because the question we are going to ask today as we conclude this series, How Not to Read the Bible, is the question, is the Bible intolerant? And this question is an extremely common question, and it's not just an extremely common question. It is one of the most common oppositions to the scriptures and to Christian faith in culture today. And it is a question born out of individualism. Let me, let me explain. How many of you guys have heard the term, my truth? Maybe you've even said that, those words, my, this is my truth. Now, listen, I want to be sensitive here. I am not diminishing the power of personal experience. Our personal experiences matter. Your stories matter. What you have been through, what you have seen, what you have experienced, all of the ups and downs, the peaks and the valleys of your life, they matter tremendously. And so when we use the phrase, my truth, it's not all bad. In some ways, I understand what you are saying. But that phrase also, culturally speaking, has been taken to the extreme. To the point now where if you propose to culture at large that there is the possibility that some truth, or in fact, by definition, actual, real, fixed truth is immovable, that it is not subjective but objective, you're not only ridiculed, you're canceled. You can't say such things in secular culture today because everybody has their own truth. You've heard this phrase, yes? Oprah Winfrey 
Some of you guys are on high alert because you love Oprah and you dream of being at her show. You get a car and you, you want one of those Oprah cars. I do too. I get it. This is not a blanket critique of Oprah. I just want to quote her really quick because this quote, epit- I mean, think about how influential Oprah is. This quote epitomizes this whole concept of my truth, particularly when it comes to the life of faith, when it comes to how we think about God or who God is or how we might arrive at him or get to him. Oprah said this, that there are many ways, many paths to what you call God. There couldn't possibly be one way. There couldn't possibly be one way because I have my truth and you have your truth and all of our different paths will ultimately lead to God. If we were to visualize what Oprah is saying here, it might look something like this, like a mountain with God at the peak. And we might say that there is one path, the path we call Christianity, that leads to God. And then we might say, but also things like self-enlightenment or secular humanism or agnostic spirituality or just plain even atheism maybe is a path. It's a different path, but it is a path that still leads to God. Or we might say there are a bunch of world religions out there, maybe Hinduism or Islam or Buddhism or any number of other religious traditions. Maybe that's just simply another path that leads to God. And in some ways, let me admit something to you. I wish that this were true. I mean, this would be a beautiful thing, would it not? That no matter what you believe, no matter what truths are your truths, and no matter how how much those truths diverge from my truth, that we're all headed in the same direction, that we will all someday arrive at the one true God. I wish that that were true. There's a problem, though. Because in light of this many ways to God, many paths to God ideal, The Bible and Jesus himself seems to say otherwise. Let me just show you some examples. Jesus himself says this in John 14. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. And this sounds so intolerant, this next line. We love it sometimes. We're like, oh, we sing a song like he's the way, the truth, and the life. We sing that song sometimes at church and we're like, we love it. But then look at what Jesus says, so intolerant. No one comes to the Father except through me. How dare you, Jesus? No one comes to the Father except through me. Quite intolerant. If you really know me, then you know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And he's talking about himself. In the early church, this is what they said in Acts chapter 4. Salvation is found in... No one else but Jesus. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Really intolerant. 1 John chapter 5. Whoever has the son, that is Jesus, has life. Then get ready for this. It doesn't sound very nice. Whoever does not have the son of God, Jesus, does not have life. This is grossly intolerant on the surface, is it not? And I'm not just making this up. It's just from the Bible. 
Jesus himself declares these truths about himself. No one gets to the Father, God, the peak of the mountain, except through me. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved except the name of Jesus. We have a problem here because culture tells us that there can't possibly be one way to God. But Jesus and the Bible seem to tell us, no, in fact, there is just one way to God. What do we do with this? A few thoughts. First, let's do a little bit of history. Secular historians believe, many of them propose, this, this idea that there is even just one God, it's a, it's a, um, the term for it is monotheism, that there's one God, one theistic being, one God, monotheism. This idea of monotheism, that there's one God, secular historians say that that's actually like a really modern construct. Many secular historians suggest that, in, in fact, at the beginning of time, when human beings first began thinking religiously, they began with what they call animism. And these are all kind of fancy um, words. You don't have to remember them. But all animism means is that when people began to think religiously for the first time, they just began to assert that there was divinity embedded in, like, creation, like animals and trees. And then they say that animism, they think, evolved into both polytheism and pantheism, meaning polytheism is the belief that there are lots of gods. Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. And then they say poly and pantheism evolved into what they call henotheism, which is the belief that, yes, there are many gods, but there's like one God that rules over all of them. And then they believe well, henotheism then evolved into what we understand today as monotheism, that there's just actually one God. So what many secular historians will tell you is, this, is that this idea that there's just really one God is pretty recent. It's kind of a man-made construct and that this is not how human beings have always thought. Now, this makes sense if we believe that the human story begins at Genesis chapter 3. Because what do we see in Genesis chapter 3? Remember, if you're familiar with the biblical story, this is when Adam and Eve sin. Um, they are tempted by a serpent in the garden of Eden. And this is what the serpent says to them. Um, if you eat of this tree, this fruit, you're not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened. And... You will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, if we believe that Genesis 3 is the beginning of the human story, then this sort of thing kind of makes sense. You have animism with like the, the serpent is like kind of seems like a divine creature. And most importantly, um, Adam and Eve believe that rather than living in light of the love of the one true God, they believe they can eat this fruit and they too can become like gods. It's like polytheism, pantheism, all we can see kind of how it flows. But what Christians have always believed is that the human story does not begin at Genesis 3, but that it begins at Genesis 1. And what Genesis 1 reveals to us is that in the beginning, people worshiped one God. I mean, literally the opening lines of the Bible. What does it tell us? 
In the beginning, God created heavens and the earth and everything else. God singular. Now, just an aside, this is a whole nother teaching series that we may do at some point in the future. Christians also believe in a Trinitarian God. Fancy word to mean three in one. Father, Son, Spirit in one. But this does not mean that there are three individual gods. It's three in one, not one dispersed into three. Make sense? It shouldn't make sense because the Trinity is very confusing and, and we'll, we'll explore this in 2022. Mark, let's explore it in 2022. Trinity. But for our purposes today, the most important thing is that the Trinity is three in one. One God. This word in the beginning, God created, the word God is singular. There was one God in the beginning. This is affirmed throughout the scriptures. In fact, I'll just give you one of many examples. A late letter, 1 Timothy chapter 2. What does it say? For there is one God. Those secular historians want to tell us that in the beginning of the human story, people believe there were lots of gods. And this whole idea that there's just one God is a more recent phenomenon. The reality is, if you believe that the biblical story tells the true story of humanity, then what you believe by default is that in the beginning, humans understood there is just one God. One historian, Karen Armstrong, she says it this way, that there had been a primitive monotheism, one God, before men and women started to worship a number of gods. In the beginning, therefore, there was one God. This is a historian speaking from a historical perspective. Now, if we have established that in the beginning there was at least the belief that there was one God, not many gods, then let's go here. The second point, that Jesus, who is God, was prophesied about long before and during the time that other world religions were being birthed. Some people will argue that there are all these other religions that predate Christianity. That those of us who are followers of Jesus are just men, women, and children who have been swept up in a far more modern sort of religious movement. That if we just do a little work, if we just sift through history a little bit, we will discover that a wide variety of other religious movements long predate Christianity. They base this on the fact that Christ was born probably around the year 4 BC and that he died around the year 30 AD. And then they'll tell us things like, well, what about like Buddhism and Hinduism? These religions were around long before Jesus was born. That's a fair point. But again, if we believe that the human story begins in Genesis 1, we see a different picture. Now, before we get to that, we have to make a couple of points clear. Christianity is founded upon the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what does that have to do with God? This is kind of recap for most of us, but this is important. Christians believe that Jesus and God are one. 
We don't believe that because of conjecture. We don't believe that because it's convenient. We believe it because Jesus himself said it. John 10, I and the Father are one. John 14, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And so when we talk about Jesus, at least according to his own claims, we are talking about God. Now, if we are talking about God, but Jesus himself arrives on the scene just 2,000 years ago, long after the rise of other religions, what do we make of this? Again, we believe that the story does not begin in A.D. 30 or 4 B.C., like when Jesus is physically born, incarnated into the world. We believe the story begins long before. And in fact, when you go to the beginning of the human story in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters the picture, what do you see? Jesus. Genesis 3, verse 15, God says, after sin enters the picture, he's speaking to the serpent. The serpent represents God's enemy. And God says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He, this is a prophecy about Jesus, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Most scholars believe this is a prophetic word specifically about what Christ will do in his death and resurrection at the beginning of the human story. Three chapters into the human story, what do we have? Jesus. And then throughout history, even as other world religions are on the rise, what do we see? Jesus. Isaiah chapter 7, written, they think, about 700 years before the birth of Christ. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. You guys, this was written 2,700 years ago, and you and I today in 2021 California still use the word Emmanuel to describe Christ. Micah chapter two, uh, chapter five. You, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old from ancient times. This is a prophetic word about Jesus. Again, about 700 years before Jesus' birth. Some scholars believe that the book of Isaiah is actually written in two parts. Some scholars believe three parts. Uh, and many scholars believe, this is debated, but many scholars believe that the latter parts of Isaiah were written like 100 to 200 years after the early parts. If that is true, look at this um, really well-known prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. This latter part, some scholars believe, was written at 500 BC. So let me show you this chart. It's kind of hard to see. If you're interested, just email me. I'll send you all of my slides. Happy to do that. You see in the yellow at the top the rise of other world religions. Hinduism comes, uh, it arrives on the scene around 1500 BC. Buddhism in 563 BC. Islam in 622 AD. Enlightenment and secular humanism around 16 and 1700 AD. 
And some historians will say, secular historians, well, Jesus doesn't arrive until like the middle of that chart in the blue there where it says Jesus and Christianity, 30 AD. But here's the deal. What we know, if we believe the scriptures tell the true story of the human story and God's story, and that's not a given. Some of us don't believe that and that is okay. We're thrilled you're here. I'll talk more about um, that may be an opportunity for you in a moment. But if we believe the Bible tells us the true story of God's unfolding story through, in and through human beings, that what we see is that at the very beginning there was a prophecy about Jesus. And that between 700 and 500 years before the birth of Jesus, there were a wide variety of prophecies about Jesus. Then we see that in AD, BC 4 to AD 30, Jesus actually arrives on the scene. The Christian church grows and explodes. And what we find even today in 2021 is that Christianity still remains the largest religion in the world. Listen, some of us here, because we live in the global West, we hear time after time, article after article, lamenting the demise of the Christian church. We hear about how more and more young people are leaving the faith. This is true, sadly. And there is work for us to do, for sure. But this is true in the global West. Did you know that in the global East and in the global South, Christianity is exploding? And it is exploding amongst emerging generations. Listen, let us not be so self-centric to believe that the Spirit of God, what he is up to, only pertains to America. Let us broaden our horizons to begin to see that God is on the move throughout the world and that many are coming to know him. And though the center of Christian ethics and the church may have shifted from the global west to the global east and the global south, you and I now live as creative, compassionate minorities in a culture of resistance against Jesus. And that offers us incredible opportunity for revival and renewal. Amen? That's a whole nother... Mark, let's do that in 2010 <laughs> As well, right? I'm just tossing out, we'll just, we'll get to this in 22. Okay. So another, the ultimate question, and I'm so sorry, there's so much to say here. I wish we had like four hours to, to journey, but we don't. And um, I want to give you an opportunity here in a moment. But another question, maybe the biggest question, but what, Jay, I understand what you're saying about the history and like one God, all that stuff. But what is, like, why does that preclude the possibility that all paths still lead to the one true God. Well, again, if we use the mountains imagery, I would suggest to you that it actually looks probably a little bit more like this. The reality of the biblical story and religious history, they show us that self-enlightenment, secular humanism, agnostic spirituality, maybe even atheism, they actually don't lead to the one true triune God revealed to us in Jesus. What they lead to is the self, or sometimes people will use the phrase, the divine spark as God. 
Um, other religions, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, again, I wish we had time to delve into some of these things in detail, but when you do some study and some research, what you recognize very quickly is that these other religions, although they have much beauty in them, the God that they lead you to is not the one true triune God revealed to us in Jesus, but rather false iterations of God. And that it's Christianity, again, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. What you begin to realize is that Jesus is who he says he is, the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can get to the Father except through Jesus. When I say Christianity is the path to the one true God, I do not simply mean that like, you know, all of the trappings of evangelical Christianity is the way. What I mean is that Jesus is the way. Listen, churches are made up of messed up people. We wrestle with theological issues and cultural issues and issues of pragmatism. I don't stand up here and talk for 30 minutes on Sundays because I have it all figured out or I've cornered the market on orthodoxy or every word I say is exactly right. What I believe is that probably at least 20% of what I say is wrong. The problem is I don't know which 20%. I'm just doing my best based on my best prayerful understanding of the text. But what I do know is this, that my shortcomings cannot stop the irresistible love of God expressed through Jesus to draw all of us to him. Listen, when culture tells us that to say Jesus is the only way is intolerant, I would suggest to you that tolerance in that way can actually be quite unloving. If you are confident and sure that Jesus is truly the one and only way to God, then how could you not share that good and critically important news to those who are climbing the mountain on paths that will lead to their demise? To tolerate would be to say, yeah, your truth, your path, but if you are confident that this path, not your path, but the path that Jesus invites us to, is the one path that leads to God, how could we not invite others on that path? Tolerance would tell us, no, man, let everyone pick their own way. But if you know that those different paths leads, lead to demise and destruction, it's actually quite unloving, is it not? Let me um, show you an image here. This is called the Munker Optical Illusion. I want to ask you a question. Don't think too hard about this, okay? There are two colors in terms of the circles. Mark doesn't know because he's colorblind. I just keep talking to Mark today because he's sitting right here and I love it. Mark, Mark can't see the colors, but if you're not colorblind, you can see the two colors, Yes? How many of you see some version of green and some version of teal? Some, well, how many of you don't see two colors? Okay, most everybody, how many of you just see two colors, whatever they are? Just raise your hand. Yeah, most of you in the room, okay. Most of you see two colors. Now, what if I were to tell you that these circles are actually not two colors, but a, but a single color? 
How many of you think, look very carefully, how many of you believe that um, the circles are actually more along the lines of like a teal, like a bluish? Okay, how many of you believe that the single color of the circles is actually something more like a green or a lime green-ish color? Whoa, there you go. Well, then, next slide, the majority of you are correct. Every circle is the same color. RGB 103-244-86. That is the color. I don't even know what that means. Our creative pastor, Les Letterman, I don't know if he's here. He knows what that means. He's like, oh, yeah, RGB 244, whatever. But <laughs> Pantone, is that what it is? I don't know. Um, okay, so this is fascinating, right? The Munker optical illusion is designed... To, again, because of the, the horizontal lines, it's designed to like trick you into believing that there are multiple colors. No matter how much you want to argue or suggest that there are two colors, the reality, the fixed reality, the truth, not your truth or my truth, the truth is that there is only one color. You could deny it all you want. But that is the truth. So it is with our path to God. C.S. Lewis um, wrote a book several years ago, many years ago, several decades ago, uh, in the part uh, in his Chronicles of Narnia series, um, a book called The Silver Chair. And I want to read for you just a short scene from The Silver Chair. And it's a scene where a young girl named Jill is dying of thirst and she comes upon a stream, a little river. And in the river she sees a lion, a lion named Aslan. And if you know the Chronicles of Arnia, you know that Aslan represents Jesus in this story. I want to read for you a dialogue that they have. Jill is unfamiliar with Aslan and this is what happens. Then the voice of Aslan said again, if you are thirsty, come and drink. The voice was not like a man's, it was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy, golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in rather a different way. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May may I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come to drink in the stream, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, said Jill. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings, emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. 
Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream. Maybe you are thirsty. Maybe you're thirsty for hope, for purpose, for meaning, or for destiny. Maybe you're thirsty for identity, for belonging. Maybe you thirst for love or for joy or for peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe you thirst for healing and wholeness. Maybe you have been so thirsty, you've been searching for a drink at a wide variety of rivers and streams. Maybe you have embarked on journeys toward the rivers of money or success or relationship or romance or achievement or accolades or on and on. And all of these rivers have left you parched and dry and thirsting for something that will actually satisfy the longing of your soul. Hear the words of Jesus speak to you today whether you have been drinking from the river, the waters of life for many years, or you are exploring the faith, I believe with every fiber of my being in my body, blood, and bones that there is no other stream. That the thing you long for, the thing you hunger for, your thirst will only be quenched at the river of life as Jesus himself says in John 7, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, rivers of living water will flow within them. If you are thirsty for a drink of living water, if your lips are parched from the pain and the hurt of your past or the fear and anxiety of the future or the uncertainty and complexity of the present, if you are desperate for purpose, meaning, destiny, identity, love, joy, peace, grace, forgiveness, healing, wholeness, if you are thirsty, there is no other stream but Jesus. And all you need do is approach open-handed, willing to not venture off to other streams, but to fix yourself, to gaze upon that great lion who offers you life and drink. pray together. Jesus, Son of God, the Messiah, the King who has come to rescue us and to make us whole. Pray for every person in this room and watching online who is thirsty. Pray for those who have been drinking from a wide variety of streams. 
and find themselves still wanting. I pray now in this moment by your spirit, you might guide them to you, to yourself. They might drink the rivers of living water. I pray for those of us who have been faithfully following you for many years, that even for us, as we get so distracted by the pressures and the stresses and anxieties of this life, that in our weariness, in our thirst, that now, here and now, today, we too might come back and drink the living waters that you offer, find ourselves restored and renewed. We thank you that you offer yourself to us in such ways. We pray that you would move us to share the opportunity to have our thirst quenched with all those around us who are thirsty for that which only you can satisfy. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.